to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. Paul, today we are all about location, location, location. We're going into the real estate business. Might not be a bad idea, but who would trust us? <laughs> not me. <laughs> no, today we're going to talk a little bit about what location, why location may or may not matter in wine. Well, with you it matters a lot because you need to get a spot right in front of the bar. I'm always trying to be right up front. There you go. Yep. Uh, also today, listeners ask why wines with the same scores are priced so differently. Good. Why the Sierra Foothills seem to get no respect. Bad. And what barrel fermented means. <laughs> Plus, our horrible wine writing is horrible over wine writing today. And as usual, we will make fun of wine snobs. Yes, we will. Couple reminders, by the way, we're still on Capital Public Radio's podcast and lineup. Recommended podcasts. Uh, it's the Sacramento's NPR station. You would think they should know better. You would also think Napa Valley College would know better, but there we are on their Napa Broadcasting Network. Despite them being an institute of higher learning. You would think. You would think they'd know. All right. And one other thing. Paul is leading a wine cruise out of San Francisco on July 31st through August 1st, August 10th. Leading. leading. I will be in front of the wine cruise. Yeah. That's They'll down. put me in a little boat. Yes, just in he's going to be rowing a little long. <laughs> Fast keep as I there. can row. Yes, uh, they're they're going down the coast of California, talking about wines of the West. And the yep. ship is the Crystal Symphony, which is one of Condé Nast Traveler's top cruise ships in the world, Paul. Yes. How'd you get on? Uh, they put on extra lifeboats oh, okay. for people who wanted to abandon ship. Lots of information is at winecruisegroup.com. That's winecruisegroup.com. And that's through Expedia Cruises. We also have a link on our website. And by the way, for the next couple of days, we are both at the Vancouver International Wine Festival. This was recorded a little ahead of that. Yes, we are. And so at the moment, Paul's speaking, maybe not right this very second, but around now is speaking about Spanish and Portuguese wine. I'm harassing him at every opportunity. No spitballs, please. Yeah, well, I'm going to try. I am unflappable. Yep. Yeah, you seem to be. And if you happen to be there, anyone, come say hello. I'm the good-looking one. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yes. 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 Me think you doth protest too loudly, Paul. All right. So I got a question from a friend uh, and thought it might be worth talking about. And this is a really large subject and it's complicated. So we're going to simplify it up and really make no sense at all. No it. sense at all. Good. It is our way. Um, <laughs> so she asked uh, about wineries always bragging about why their spots are wonderful. Every right. place they go. and Isn't it amazing that yeah. no matter where the winery is, it is in the magical spot that God designed to grow the perfect grapes to make the perfect and wine. That it is magical indeed. Uh, it's hard to imagine how all of those spots could be that perfect. But she asked a better question, uh, a larger question, which I think is actually worth talking about. Is what is it that makes a good vineyard or a wine region good? Or what do locations do to wine? And there what are makes sort of two big answers. The yep. first one is marketing. Yep. Yep. If you're making wine with a bunch of other people who are also really, really good at making wine and you all work together to make really good wine and you all work together to market that wine, pretty soon you've got the Napa Valley making wines that challenge the very best wines anywhere in the world. But then there's the other question of, as we all know from growing tomatoes in our backyard, the tomato plants that are up against that back fence and get a little more sunshine and a little more heat in the summertime, they get ripe a little sooner. Maybe they've tasted a little better. And those sorts of things happen in vineyards, too. Both of those things are involved. And so location oh, wait, matters. I, I, got, I got one point. Good. Please uh, interrupt uh, me at any point, Rick. Well, it's, it's, it's one of the things that gives me joy. Okay, because uh, I'm unflappable. Yes. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't grow tomatoes. Don't you? Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's why I, I'm explaining this to the people out in the audience. Rather Who than actually have, I'm just saying, I don't have, I don't have much of a green thumb. 
<laughs> you, right. back, you have opposable thumbs, and that's saying a lot back, for you. It's, it's, <laughs> it surprises people that there should have been more more development. But yes, yep. Anyway, you're, the point being that yes, so so there are, are two big. There are two sort. Those are two really large things. One of right. them is the fact that being around each other matters. Right. Being in a wine. One of the things that makes wine regions great is that other people in the wine region are are, are also great, and they're, they're learning. And they're cooperating, and, and they're, they're also hard. forcing each other to, to do you know better things. Right. And then the second is weather and, and sunshine and, and things. Those sorts of things do have impacts. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Although I, I've always said, if you gave me a so-so vineyard with a great vineyard, vineyard manager and a great winemaker, or you gave me a great vineyard with a so-so vineyard manager and a so-so winemaker, I'd drink the first wine probably before I'd drink the second. The one with a good vineyard manager and, and the good winemaker, because yeah. I know I'm going to get something good. And on the other side, I may get something that isn't good because people make the biggest difference of all. Yeah, yes. Well, that's... We, we believe that about the world. People make a difference, Paul. <laughs> right, let's talk just a little bit about what some of the sort of natural things, natural attributes of places do, like warm right. versus cool. Right. So Sunshine, you know, like cool. Ideally, yeah. a grapevine should be in perfect balance, which means the grapes get ripe, the flavors are ripe, the acidity is perfect, and the grapes are just sitting there in the vine saying, make me into wine today. But lots of regions may get a little warmer and they may lose a little acidity before the flavors get ripe. Others are a little cooler and the acidity is all high, even though the grapes aren't quite. And so, a way to uh, think yeah, about that matters. This. Yeah, and a way to think about this is the same as, um, you know, whether it's peaches on a tree or those tomatoes, is that, you know. I don't grow peaches, right? Well, if you had a green thumb, you would. <laughs> the, uh, but as as, as <laughs> or the middle, the middle finger too. The, uh, the, uh, <laughs> fruit. Sorry, I'm laughing because it was a well-timed digital use. Uh, the, um, think about all fruit starts off sour, high acid. You know, you think right. of, you know, a very early as a peach on a tree in a neighborhood right. or any kind of fruit starts, it's very sour. Right. Um, and as it ripens, the, the sugars rise, the acids drop. Right. And at some point, right. they're in a perfect balance. And well, you well, hope they are. You hope if, they are if, at if some point. If they're in a good place. Yeah. And there's another thing is that with certain fruits and is that also it's not just the sugar going up and the acids getting down to right. where they balance, but also where flavors develop. Actual and, and, and there's another element that you're talking about within, say, a relatively narrower range, but in a larger range, for example, really tough to grow tomatoes on the North Pole. Uh, really tough. It's really tough to grow anything at the North yeah, Pole. Yeah, well, exactly. But And so th there are certain grapes that grow better in cooler climates right. and certain grapes that grow better in warmer climates. But that's about as specific as I want to get. Because well, I think once you start getting beyond that, you start getting into a whole lot of people blowing a whole lot of hooey. Well, there, but there are a couple of other things, too. So what, <laughs> one of the things that people ask about and they hear about a lot, so one way to, to define a warmer climate or cooler climates is, is sometimes it has to do with how much things cool down or how, sure. how, what kind of breezes they get. Often near the ocean, you can hand, handle near the ocean you can handle a lot more sunshine because then it also cools down with things like fog and, if and breezes. If the ocean is cold the way it is in California. Yes, yeah. true. Right, true, true, true. Uh, and sometimes altitude affects the very same thing. Yep. You can get lots of sunshine yep. at altitude yep. but also it cools down a lot. But all of those basically are wrapped around that concept of sugar and f ripeness going up, 
acidity going down, and at some point they should be in this magic little triangle where everything is right. Right. And so that's what so much of what people talk about when they talk about things like that. Like, you know, we have these cool ocean breezes. We have this, you know, beautiful south, southwest, southeast, south semi-exposure. You right. Know. In uh, yeah, in some places, uh, Mount Etna, for example, which is um, uh, the largest vol- active volcano in Europe, yes, in southern Italy, on, yes. you know, Sicily, Sicily, yeah, um, the best vineyards are facing north because it get it's so warm that they get Sicily, less. Sicily, well, yeah. for those grapes, for those grapes, for the for grapes to grow there. Right. But there are grapes that would grow better on the south side of. Etna, but they're not the grapes they're growing there. Yes, and because and, it's it would be warmer. Yes, and so I mean, so the, so that's what that discussion is always about. Um, and then you know, but what then you do things, and this is where this is ha- always hard to believe. I was uh, with some friends up on a hill in Napa, looking at one of the, the most renowned vineyards in Napa. Right, and if you look at it, uh, and you look at the vineyard right next to it, right next to it. Right, and you're up on a hill. Now you're above it, and fairly close. You can't imagine what the difference would be. Yeah, the you know they have yeah. to get they'll get the same amount of sun because you remember right. mountains give shade. So right. sometimes they you know the the tilt is about the same. Were the soils right. different? Possibly. Well, quite in Napa, quite possibly, because Napa, of course, has a couple of uh, a huge number of different soils, and then it's been in earthquakes for the last right. Two million years, so that everything is chopped and diced and sliced and split into a million different pieces. In general, grapevines prefer to have soils that have a lot of drainage. They don't like in the in the old world. They say they don't like their feet getting wet. So you Who like does? <laughs> well. <laughs> I don't mind it on a hot day, but nevertheless, <laughs> what, it explains the squishing sounds in here sometimes. <laughs> when I walk around, <laughs> yes. But if you want those well-drained soils, all you need is rock. And there, there are any number of people who claim that well, if it grows in this kind of rock, it tastes this way and that. In fact, every scientific study that's ever been done on that right. shows it does not impart flavors. Does not impart flavors. Yeah, in we grapes. Had, remember we had uh, uh, one of those uh, hoity-toity wine writers saying that the new cool thing is learning all the soils. Learning all the soils. Yes, right. you don't, because you've got nothing, nothing else to know. do with your right. life. Yes, right. Um, so, yeah. but you know, sometimes vineyard to vineyard can be just how well cared for the vineyard is. Or, oh, it absolutely you know, is. And you know, you have a vineyard that may get a little too much sun, so. Do you uh, encourage the vine to grow a few more leaves so that it's a little more shady? Do you prune it a little higher in the air so you get a little more airflow underneath? There are all sorts of things that vineyard managers can do to control, and this is what their job is, to control those grapes so that when it's time to harvest, the grapes are perfect. And there's lots of places in the world that you can do that. And if the grapes are perfect and the wines are really beautifully made, it's really hard to tell which came from that spot and which came from this spot. You know, I, I off the subject a bit, and this is something we should just show on at some time. You time. off the subject? Hard to believe. Hard to imagine. I know, but it, there you go. What were we talking about? I have a, <laughs> a real estate. Having a clue. No, the, uh, the last part is that, that how how the good vineyard managers manage a vineyard. You know, yes. what, how many leaves, what kind of canopies, the airflow, and all that sort of thing is really kind of a fascinating thing. Now, does it matter to you if you're just trying to figure out a bottle of wine to have a dinner? Probably yeah. not. No, but it's fun. It's one of the it's one of the fun parts of the wine world. Just like the histories of vineyards and places and well, regions. Well, but the other are fun. side of it is it doesn't really matter to you. But if you found a wine you like and you buy it over and over again and you're really satisfied mm-hmm. with it, chances are they've got one of those vineyard. 
managers. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so those are things. But some of these, we'll, we'll talk about what that sort of thing is. But so the answer to, to my friend is um, it, it's this constant sort of tug of war between sunshine and coolness. And, right. But and, talking and to wineries sort of about their vineyards is oh. like talking to grandparents about their grandchildren. Every single my, one of them is amazing. My grandparents always used to trash me. <laughs> I believe that. Yeah. And they were right. <laughs> I, I can't. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with them. Right. <laughs> believe that. Well, thumbs. He's got no thumbs. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. No, I said, that kid's got not one lick of sense. Well, speaking speaking of uh, not one lick of sense, <laughs> not one we've lick got of sense. more people asking us questions. <laughs> well, that makes no so sense. So we're gonna we're gonna take a few. Uh, and once again, thank you for listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Uh, if you'd like to ask us a question, the place is rickandpaulwine.com. And uh, that it would be our website if you're listening there. If you're on iTunes, uh, come on over and ask us a question and subscribe for free if you're not on iTunes. Um, and uh, it makes us look good. All right. So uh, this one comes from Bill in Sacramento. And it's a little bit related to this. He says, mm-hmm. I can't figure out why there's such a huge spread in wine prices especially for wines that get identical scores from the same magazines. Right. So you look at some wines, they get 90 points, and the spread among those can be more than $100. Yep. Bill's asking why. Well, Bill, I would encourage you to buy the wines that are at the lower end of that spectrum. Yeah. Get the same it's, a, it's the deal, First actually. of all. Yeah. Um, but people don't buy wine only because of what it tastes like. And so, for example, there are there are wonderful stories and and um, research projects on this, where people were given the same identical, I mean, literally the identical wine, and either told the price was different or told that that put it was put into two different bottles. Oh, and yeah. people consistently preferred the more expensive wine when they knew what the price was right. or consistently preferred the wine that had the more prestigious label on it. Um, when you're buying a bottle of wine, you're buying flavor, but you are also buying all the peripheral stuff around the edges. And if Rick and Paul made a wine that tasted exactly like Chateau de Lafitte Rothschild from Bordeaux and we put it on the market, I am absolutely sure we, we – we would have to pay people to buy. It. We would not Here's get ten dollars to buy our. $5 we would not wine. get the yeah. kind of money that they get for that wine because they've been making that wine for two hundred years yeah. and and they get some credit for that. Yes, there's there's lots of reasons and and some of it has to do with that location 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 thing, which is that. Some wines from some regions just can command a better price well, simply because, because they, of the reputation of the because region. Because of their reputation and, and their and region. And it also might be more expensive to work there. The, the grapes might cost more. The land might cost more. There's just that sort of thing going on sometimes. Well, can you imagine so, how much we'd have to pay people to work for us? Uh, it's unimaginable sums, <laughs> yes. We'd have, to, we'd, have to, we'd have to hire somebody, one person who was willing to do it, then go off and hire everybody else without telling them who he or she is working for because it, oh, it wouldn't work. But yeah, so work. it's – and they the, – that is, but that contradiction, sort of on price and points, is yeah. is a is a really good one. I mean, yeah. it's a great contradiction. It, it, it is that amazing, is unexplainable, because, well, unexplainable, available. Almost every consumer in America believes that when it comes to wine, you get what you pay for. Yep. The more you pay, the better you get. And almost every expert in the wine field will tell you that the relationship between price and quality isn't anywhere near one-to-one, and frequently it's completely discombobulated. Right. And there are places, in fact, just the opposite side of that, the places where they, they don't take you seriously unless your wines are above a certain price. Right. And m- many, right. many of the best best regions of the world, if you don't have an expensive wine, they figure you're not very good. People, and Rick, don't. It's why. Rick, 
people don't take us seriously no, ever. It's, it's why we, we keep trying to charge a higher and higher price for the show, too. <laughs> Nobody seems to be buying. Nobody I, seems to care. Yeah. All right. So it, there's no there's no real one reason except for all of the reasons why there's such a great spread in price on many things. But wine probably more than most. Yep. yep. All right. The next one comes from Megan in South Lake Tahoe. And this is also about place. And this is uh-huh. our, our wine country is Sierra Foothills. Yeah. And I have two questions. Um, we taste a lot of wines and think there's some really good ones there. She's but they right. Just, they just don't seem to get much respect. I almost never see stories about them in the hoity-toity wine magazines. Why is that? She has a second question, but let's answer the first one first. Okay. First of all, she's right. Mm-hmm. There are some really good wines in the Sierra Foothills, and I have become a huge fan of them. And in I fact, too. <laughs> they are they are competitively priced and really good. But there are at least two reasons that come to mind immediately. One of them is that many of the best wines in the Sierra Foothills are not made with what are considered the most famous grapes in America. The most famous grapes are Cabernet, Merlot, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay. A lot of the really good wines in the Sierra Foothills are, for example, Barbera, absolutely stunning Barberas, uh, Zinfandels. Yeah. And lots of the what we call the Rhone grapes from southern France, Grenache and Syrah. And those grapes generally don't get the same kind of attention as what are the the big three in the American market, Cabernet, Merlot and Chardonnay. And so the market force is is one of the reasons, even though the the wine magazines pretend that they are not responding to the market. Second reason would be that a lot of the attention for wines go to wines that are distributed on a national basis. And a lot of wineries up in the Sierra Foothills, they're too small and they sell everything they make to the local community or maybe within California. What do wine writers in New York know about them? Very little. But even wine writers in California, and they should know, but they don't. They, it, there is an, also a coolness factor thing, although it is changing. But uh, it is that, you know, they they won't go going back to Bill's question about, you know, uh, price and, and different oh, wines yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is, you know, that is the same thing that they they don't want to be caught, quote unquote, giving scores. To um, to places from such uncool areas, it, unless the wines are really spectacular, but they don't even taste them. Right. Be, it, right. That's part of it is they just don't taste or them. Or when they yeah. do, they know they're tasting wines from they this other region yeah. and they're automatically predisposed to say, well, right. I can't possibly give these wines the same ratings that I gave the wines from right. Napa because the wines from Napa get 100 points and sell for $250 a bottle and these don't. And, so, and once again, and for their magazines, for the commercial interests of their magazines is they want to be able to. To write about wines that will get people interested in buying their magazine because so right. they so people want to buy wines from Napa and so they write about wines from Napa well, because and, and there's yeah. also an element again most of these magazines have a protocol where when you send them wines right. one of the first questions they ask you is how much did you make and how many states is it available in because sure. if it's not available in the major markets they don't want to write about it because then their readers get really upset right. you keep writing about wines we can't taste. Right. So, and that one is so, legit. That's so absolutely So all legit. of those yeah. combined to answer the first question. Yeah. We, Rick, we answered that question. Yeah, well, here comes the next one. We're going to probably miss this <laughs> yeah, one. We'll muck so this Megan one up. also asks, there aren't many super expensive wines there, but we never find them for very cheap. Very, very cheap as well, you know, uh, either. Most of them seem to be in the $18 to $30 range. Yep. And that has, is completely connected to how much they make. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. You know, it isn't. Let's <laughs> see if I could get you to go, yes, it is. <laughs> well, um, it's partly related 
to how much they make. It is also partly related to who walks in their tasting room. Oh, fair they enough. They have identified the sweet spot for the people walking oh, yeah. into their tasting well, room. Well, but in terms of the lower price, it's you know it's hard to you know it's just a certain cost to making a bottle of wine. It's also hard to sell a really inexpensive bottle of wine. Sommeliers will tell you if yeah. they have a wine on their list that isn't selling, they raise well, the price to sell it. And when people walk into a tasting room and they see the five dollar bottle and then eighteen to thirty dollar bottles, one of the first questions I ask is, "What's wrong with the five dollar bottle well, of wine?" And they don't buy it. Yeah, but on the other hand, I mean, there is, and it's true. We we see, we know, like for example, the higher, high, you know, what we call premium pricing, which is really ten dollars and above, is where all the growth is. But still, right. the vast majority of sales coming out of supermarkets, for example, in that you know, is under ten dollars. Yeah, under ten dollars. Under ten dollars. So why can't you find a lot of ten dollar, under ten dollar bottles of wine? And and some of it is that it takes just an economy of scale to do that. Right. You have to be able right. to buy glass at a large large amount, and that's yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but the the flip side is is they're not going to charge a ton for their wines because it just wouldn't it doesn't fit their buyer. In either. fact, yeah. every winery will charge almost exactly as much as it possibly can and still sell the wine. Oh, sure. That's the basic pricing. Right. right. And so, and yeah. with wine and raising the price can be, but that is. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, Megan's right about the range. I mean, it does seem to be you know white. Well, that's the sweet the spot, though. Yeah. If you were to tell anybody in the wine market today, I'm starting a new winery and I want to sell a lot of wine. What price point should I be at? Everybody in the wine industry would tell you 18 to 30 is a really good place to be. Right. And luckily, that's our age group as well. All right. Uh, that's it for questions for now. Uh, up next, some really horrible wine writing. Oh, boy. Oh, there you go. And, uh, that is music for all ages and all price ranges. Uh, and <laughs> as is our really horrible wine writing. Yep. Um, and this is from a really big deal critic. The Cabernet is medium to deep garnet in color with a slowly evolving nose of black berry preserves, kirsch, and incense notes with a hint of dried herbs, potpourri, earth and leather, plus a waft of rosehip tea. The full-bodied, rich, concentrated, and complex palate offers firm, grainy tannins and a lively acid line. Drink 2018 to 2035. Rick, can you explain what the difference between a hint and a waft is? Yes. Well, see, when a hint wafts, it's moving lightly. It's, it flows with little bumps in the air. No, no. These are both nouns. You can't yes. you can't change one of them to a verb. What's a yeah. hint and what's a waft? No, a waft is is a, is a hint that is wafting. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this these is, guys are okay. trying hard. Oh dear lord! And I, you know, if if anybody actually made it, listened, and uh, yeah, was able to, to the keep end. able yeah. to keep. Like what the heck was that about? Yeah. That was just way too long. Yeah. I also like, by the way, that blackberry was two words. I did pronounce it as two words because yes. it was two words. So, so it, it is blackberry preserves. So it's not blackberry preserves. No, no, no. It's berries it's that black are black preserves made preserves. of of all dark berries. Yep. yep. Um, and kirsch because everybody knows and loves kirsch. But it has notes, hints, and wafts. Yes. Uh, it's uh, uh, and o- over overwritten uh, too many too many too many things. Um, yes, the okay. uh, just horrible. Mine, just mine, horrible. Is, mine is just as bad. So, so <laughs> good. Hang in there. This will end. I promise. <laughs> this is an intensely rich, complex, and elegant wine. Okay, those aren't even the same thing, but nonetheless, right. Um, 
no descriptors. Uh, un- I'm saying actually that th- this is a guy that's no no leaves no descriptor unused. He yet. pulled out his thesaurus. Yes. And so he right off the bat from beginning to end. rich comp and uh, yeah. So no, this is intensely rich, complex, elegant wine. Fruit notes of fruit notes of juicy raspberry, sappy fresh blueberries, and hints of candied violets to the warm notes of beeswax, honey, creamy milk chocolate, toffee, and nougat. This wine rewards the taster more and more with each examination. That was a giant dependent clause is what that was. <laughs> um, layered in the mouth with ripe, sweet tannins, weighty palate presence, a lovely balanced texture, and a graceful pause mid-palate. Its precise <laughs> flavors are well-matched to the promise from the nose, along with cherry pie filling, cardamom, well-knit oak, and a lengthy, generous, and lush finish. I love the graceful pause yes. mid-palate. It makes my sh- tongue think maybe it should be doing something at the time. I should have paused while I read that. And with a graceful pause, mid-palate... Um, <laughs> So the wine just stops. Everything everything holds for a minute. Aye, aye, it's like aye. the it's this is you want to and talk it has precise flavors. Even though he listed nine of them or twelve of them, eleven, 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 precise. Yes. It's precise flavors are well matched. The promise from this. So this is how does somebody use this as a guide? I like candied violets, by the way. You yeah. take the violets and you... I don't even know how you make candied violets. You soak Dip, them in sugar. I was going to say... And you just leave them in sugar you, and they candy. Yeah, and then yeah. eat the flour. Um, Warm notes of beeswax, honey, creamy milk, chocolate, toffee, and nougat. I also like sappy fresh blueberries. This is really... Sappy would be the word to describe this entire description. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's oh, some, yeah. something we hate. What about stuff we love? Oh, yeah. Now it changes the mood entirely, and now we're all we're all a little more we're easy. Paul, we've been talking about locations. So, what about something we love? Well, I was going to suggest what's really fun anytime you travel anywhere in the states these days is to try local wines. Yeah, just stopping in at the little tasting room and seeing what they have to offer. And I have I have visited probably twenty different states that make wine, and I've had a good wine in. Almost every well, I have had a good wine from every single one of those states, um, and it's fun. And it's not—they're not all the same, and they're not all uh, Cabernet. In fact, some of them use completely different kinds of grapes. But it's just a whole lot of fun and a wonderful bunch of people. And if you live near a winery, you ought to go and stop in and just taste whatever's closest to you first. Yeah. Just because it's fun. And because it is fun. And I'd say for sure, you know, don't be more open-minded than, say, those wine magazine reviewers. Right. You, you know, it's, you know, just because they're not from a region that you know, uh, it doesn't mean they, they can't be really outstanding wines. It may not be a grape, you know. It may be some grape that you've never heard of. It may be, turn out to be they're not wonderful. You may be drinking Traminette and yeah. Vignol and who knows what else, but yes. you know what? Have you, fun. If you can even spell any of those, that's a, that's already... But have fun. <laughs> have it, enjoy it. Ask them, and ask them questions. Yeah. You know, t- tell, tell me about the grave. Tell me about the place. Tell me about the like, And tell yeah. them you listen to Rick and Paul and the first they'll, minute they'll they throw mention you right out. minerality or malolactic yes. <laughs> fermentation, raise your hand and say, wait a minute. Don't tell them until... I'd say you wouldn't tell them until afterwards because if you tell them early, they won't, they'll just get toss you right out <laughs> boom out the, out the door out the door, out the door. Right. or or the owner will come in and say okay 
where are the people who are listening to Rick and Paul? <laughs> you. We, we have that. We've Out. we've seen it. It's it's really <laughs> ugly. All right. We have time for one more quick question. Good. Uh, so this is from Chris in Nevada, and yeah. he says, "What does barrel fermented mean? What does it do to wine?" We were in a taste room, and they were talking about that, but never really explained it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it is it's. I I will agree with Chris. It's something that you hear people saying a lot in the taste room, and nobody ever tells you what they mean by that or what it does to the wine. Yeah. It, well, and the answer is that it's, it's not all that important. But barrel fermented means it does if you're. It is if you're the barrel. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Ray. Yes. So it, what it means is guess what barrel fermented means the wine is fermented in, in a barrel. barrel. Yeah. Now most wine is fermented in larger tanks. It's a little more controllable at that size because these are temperature-controlled tanks. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also a much bigger lot. It gives you a very consistent approach. But fermenting in a barrel extracts a certain level of complexity from the oak barrel, possibly, depending on how old right. the barrels are. And it's a little harder to do so that some people look at it as a, as a layer of quality that when you barrel ferment, generally used with whites, generally not done with reds. Um, and that's what barrel fermenting is. And it's one of those things where I always say to people who ask me about this stuff, if you can taste the difference between the barrel fermented and the non-barrel fermented, you shouldn't have to tell me it's barrel fermented. I should be able to taste the difference. And if you can't taste the difference, why are you telling me about it? Well, it is like, uh, as with everything in wine, often just trying to add a little sense of romance to it. Just right? yeah. trying to make yeah. it more complicated. Um, one thing, though, uh, when you talk about the influence of barrels, Oddly enough, uh, barrel fermented actually has less impact, right. oak impact, than aging than, than in the barrel. Aging in barrels. Yeah, yes. and complicated reasons why. And we found this why, out but, yeah. by fermenting Rick in barrels and then aging him in barrels. Yes, and, and I, out... it turned out I wasn't that smooth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know what are you gonna do? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. But that's all it is, uh, and it's um, you know it's. A minor thing, but it does sound good. It always does sound good. That's right. Yes, I'm going right. to say I'm barrel That's why I barrel from my milk. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We are have been, as always, as ridiculous as usual. Um, however, as steadfast as usual is our producer, Matt Bassini. Thank you, Matt. Thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use and for including us on their podcast. Recommended lineup. podcast you, lineup. It's true. If you'd like to ask us a question, don't forget, go to rickandpaulwine.com. Also, don't forget, Paul will be leading, well, at least part of, he'll be the talker, the speaker, <laughs> at a pretty spectacular wine cruise down the West Coast, leaving San Francisco on July 31st. Information and links are available at winecruisegroup.com, winecruisegroup.com, and yep. with a link on our website. And look for us uh, over the next few days at the Vancouver International Wine Festival. If you learn anything today, we hope its location can matter a lot, unless it doesn't. And the best spot are often places we're not at. Don't buy a house from us. That too. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially us. Especially us.